Steve Verman. I'm with Richard Rains, and he wrote his uh, uh, book called Finding Washington. And it's a book about George Washington and a little bit of history and Christianity. And I would like for Richard to uh, talk about the historical aspect of his book and why he chose to write about it. And what application does it have for our lives today? Hi, Richard. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for uh, doing this podcast. So tell me a little bit about your book. Um, what kind of uh, uh, writings did you, uh, stories did you talk about in the book? The book is about George Washington's life. I highlight select stories from his life, but it's not just about his life. I discovered, Seema, when I was researching for this book, that there are approximately 900 books that have been written about George Washington. <clears throat> and I almost changed my mind about uh, using him as a backdrop for what I really wanted to talk about, which is the declining morals, the declining virtues in our culture. In the book, I highlight stories from Washington's life, many stories that even I as a historian, even though I'm a church historian, uh, I still have quite an interest in history uh, that even I was unaware of. And I try to target virtues that George Washington displayed in those historical moments. And then I make an argument in each chapter for why we need a revival of those virtues in our culture. So the book is about George Washington, but it's really about George Washington's values and why we need a revival of those kind of values in our culture. So let's talk about the values of George Washington that we could apply today. I mean, we can see a you know big historical change from his time to our time where anything goes, and I think he would be pretty shocked if he lived today. So how, in that culture, looking back in time, what was the most difficult uh, social issues of his day, and how was he uh, applying, you know, biblical practices back then? That's a good question. There are two really big issues that Washington had to face. Uh, the first was related to why the colonists decided to break with England. If you think about the way that Europe uh, had government in the Enlightenment in the 1700s, all of the countries had a king, and those kings ruled as a sovereign, meaning that um, these kings ruled by what they considered to be divine right. In other words, God had placed kings in power to rule uh, sovereignly, and any decision that a king made, uh, many times kings uh, would defend their decisions um, by the use of divine right, meaning that uh, they had been divinely appointed to rule and their rule was absolute. Well, George Washington and the founding fathers had a very different idea, and it was a it was an ideological issue, but SEMA, it was also a theological issue, meaning that at, at a time when kings said, we have all the power and God has given us the power to rule, you had these framers of what would be the Constitution and these, uh, these men that signed the Declaration of Independence that challenged that notion by saying, we believe that God has given us certain unalienable rights among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So there was a theological and an ideological issue that Washington was certainly on the side of personal freedom versus that a king could rule by divine right. So that, that's a big issue. And then uh, the second biggest issue, certainly from a moral perspective, uh, for George Washington was the issue of slavery. And I do talk about slavery in the book. Uh, it's, it's been my experience that there are a couple of different uh, perspectives when it comes to George Washington and the fact that he was a slave owner. Now, one perspective seems to be George Washington owned slaves. Therefore, uh, George Washington needs to be erased from history. That's one perspective. Uh, another perspective on the other extreme is from what I call Washington apologists. These are people who say, well, he owned slaves, but he was kind to his slaves, 
and we're not going to let that detract us from what he did during the Revolutionary War and afterwards. And so the approach that I take when it comes to dealing with Washington as a slave owner is I'm not really willing to give him any credit for the fact that he he, he did treat his slaves kindly. Um, and the illustration that I make uh, regarding that is uh, we would never say that that a rapist deserves a lesser sentence because he told his victim he loved her. So Washington does not get any credit for treating his slaves kindly, although it is a testament to his character. Um, Washington came to believe that, that slavery was immoral, so he stopped buying and selling slaves, uh, which almost ruined him financially because as these slaves would marry on his property and have families, he would have to pay to care for the families. So he did stop buying and selling slaves. But the point that I try to make in the book is that uh, slavery was a product of that time and it was a part of the economy. It was a very divisive issue. The average person in the colonies in the 1700s thought we should probably find a way to end slavery, but it was such a part of the economy that it was almost overlooked, um, similar to the way we view abortion here. You have two extremes, but the average person in America would say that we need to reduce abortions, um, but it's a it's an issue we have to live with. That is not my position. I, I'm on one of those extremes where I'm um, pretty staunchly pro-life, but I do make that that comparison. And I try to make the argument that Washington, to some extent, was was a product of his generation and a product of his time. So meaning that is it, is it fair problems. to say that each generation has its own social problems? And even though they might be rooted in God and the Bible uh, in starting their own society, but they're still followed by sin and social norms of that day, right? So if, if George Washington times was slavery and other issues and starting a new society in a new world, then today we kind of already, you know, went past that and we're looking towards the end of the culture where anything goes and trying to normalize stuff that, you know, clearly the Bible talks about as being simple. So... I don't think we need to make any excuses for anyone, for any culture or age. I think we need to focus on what it is that God wants us to be, you know, in any society at any age. I mean, the book, you know, the <clears throat> I'm sorry, uh, but the book, you know, the Bible was written over 2,000 years ago. So it's a collective history and a collective uh, storyline of each of their day and sinners and how, what they have to face from Adam and Eve and all the way till today. And you mentioned a little bit of a historical background on, you know, uh, leaving uh, England and, you know, starting a new uh, uh, country and from separation from church and state to now forming our own government and we are to follow, you know, our government, but at what extent does it become that we can't, we should not be following governmental mandates and other rules along the way, whatever they decide, you know, it's relevant for that particular period and when it goes against God. So I'm kind of interested in hearing your uh, take on that. That's a very good question. And it's a question a lot of people ask during COVID. So the way, and I've gotten this question from others, the way that I'll answer that question, Seema, is in the history of Christianity, when you look at the, the first generation of Christians, Peter and Paul and John, moving into the almost to the fourth century, from the first to the fourth century, Christianity was an illegal religion in Rome. It was illegal to practice it. Once the Roman government figured out that Christianity was not just a sect of Judaism, um, it began to be persecuted. Um, it was more localized persecution. Um, there were some large-scale persecutions, but the first generation of Christians all the way up to the fourth century had to figure out how to be Christians in under a government that considered the thing that was most dear to them, which was their faith, 
illegal. And the way that the first generation of Christians did it was if there was a law that did not force Christians to violate their basic beliefs, their orthodox doctrine, then they would follow the law. But at any point where Rome would say to them, you have to do certain things that violate your faith, like recant uh, your faith in Christ or declare that the emperor is God. The Christians, as far as they were concerned, had had no real choice and would not violate. And I think that in any generation across any culture, I think you can look at China, the underground church in China is an illegal religion. And so they are finding ways to meet and they're finding ways to practice their faith, even though the government thinks it's illegal. So when you put that in a contemporary American context, um, I would say that if our government is asking us to do something that violates the tenets of our faith, then we have no choice because the kingdom of God is what's important to us and not the kingdom of man, right? We, the kingdom of God is within you. We, it, it's almost like we live in this place, but we're not from this place. Right. And so our allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And so um, aside from that, constitutionally, it says, it's very clear in, in the First Amendment of the Constitution that the government can't inhibit the practice of religion, which is exactly what some states did, like California. You know, they were breaking doors down, stopping people from meeting. And so we are in a generation, and it's only going to get worse if you read Matthew 24. Jesus gives a list of things that's just going to get worse until the end, the end of things, which is when the abomination of desolation is, is set up in the temple. So things are going to get progressively worse in this world. And I think it serves to do two things. Number one, it serves to weed out what I would call um, casual Christianity. And uh, number two, Seema, is it, it um, really does the work of, of solidifying the faithful. There's no question, Seema, in the history of Christianity that when Christians are persecuted, Christianity grows like someone poured fertilizer on it. That's why Christianity is not growing in the United States because we're not really persecuted, but right. you look at other parts of the world and it is. So it's kind of a long answer, but that's that's really how I would frame it. No, it's so true. I think one of the things that I have noticed and why I started my website is that there, although there are many professing Christians, the faith and action is not quite there. They're getting lazier and taking granted for what we already have. So when you're talking about George Washington, you know, as a founding father who uh, established a constitution, today we don't even value the constitution. They're overriding all of those Bill of Rights that are meant to protect us from tyrannical governments and all those right. laws. So we've gone down a path where it seems hopeless, but I think, you know, like you said, that uh, revival is part of what needs to happen in our nation versus trying to evangelize to the rest of the world. I think God can already reach at the, you know, the, the furthest part of the world, uh, anybody spiritually to come to him. But in our nation, you know, it, I think having seen like all the degradation of values, I mean, it's gotten so bad that, I don't think even people recognize that the clothes that they wear, they're just degrading themselves. And the way they talk, you know, they're, they're not just creating a culture in society, but they're self-harming, you know, with everything that they do, everything um, they talk about. So how can you change a culture when the powers to be want that? as a society they, they're promoting it you know and they can't recognize and they're coming after kids who are yet so vulnerable to ideas and you know so a lot more has to be done than us just talking about it i think you know i i feel like especially during the covid time you know when i reached out to many christians and i wanted to pray you know like book of joel saying come to god if there's 
in the troubled times, you have to repent and come to God and pray. And then God will take that away. But that even that concept, I don't, you know, it was, it didn't go over very well. So, um, so I want you to talk about um, what more like George Washington, you said, you, you mentioned his uh, values and, you know, like the revival, what would that mean for us today? So that's a good question. And there's a couple of different issues at stake. So first of all, um, I faced quite a dilemma when I wrote this book. Because I, I teach Christian theology and I teach history of Christianity. All of the writing that I've done in my career as a freelance writer, I, this is my first book, has all been specifically targeted to Christians with very specific Christian themes. And when I got ready to write this book, I had to make a decision. Do I write a book for Christians about George Washington? Do I write a book for the secular audience and really kind of leave faith out of it? Or do I find a way to blend the two so that I can have a platform to talk about my faith? So I decided to blend the two, which is a little dangerous uh, doing that because one of the criticisms I've gotten is, hey, if you're a born again uh, evangelical Christian, why don't you just tell people they need Jesus? So here's the answer to that question. And this is how I'll answer your question. So I think there's a couple of things that we can do. First of all, Seema, aside from what I've written about George Washington, I want to see the church become the church. I want to see the church focus on two things. I want to see God's people focus on making disciples of all nations and then serving humanity through what I consider to be the Matthew 25 ministry where, where Jesus says, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. So I want the church to focus on those things. If you'll do evangelism and discipleship and take care of the needy, then, then that will do more to help win this culture war than anything because it's a spiritual war. But in terms of George Washington, how George Washington approached it, um, it's important to remember that, that George Washington was not an evangelical Christian. He was an Anglican. This is really before the evangelical revival. So Anglicans spoke differently, but George Washington was a man of faith. Um, if you've seen that picture of George Washington kneeling in the snow um, next to his horse at Valley Forge, that is a, that is a pictorial representation of an actual event. Someone came upon him in the woods. He was praying aloud uh, for uh, the cause. So George Washington was a man of faith. He was an Anglican, served in the Anglican church as essentially a deacon um, for, for many years. And so the way that George Washington expressed his faith was through his exercise of morality and values. And so through George Washington's life, as a result of what I consider to be his foundational, um, his, his found, the foundation of his morality, which is his faith, which again, he expressed differently than you and I would. He would not use the language that you and I are using. He would not say born again, things like that, um, because it was, he was an Anglican. But because of his faith, um, George Washington displayed uh, courage. He displayed integrity. Uh, he had displayed character. Um, he displayed conviction. He inspired people. Um, uh, uh, empathy, courage. Uh, he displayed this, this ability to be a servant leader in a way that most people have never really seen out of leaders like George Washington. So, so it was for George Washington, living out his faith was about, was about exercising these moral values that he saw compatible with his faith. In fact, he made a statement to his troops who were um, at times when they would begin to either gamble or, or drink, um, he would tell his troops that how could they ask, how could they ask God to help their endeavor when they engage in activities that violate God's command? So he's very conscious of his behavior and his speech and his morality. And so the, the argument that I'm making in the book is for Americans that we have a problem culturally. We are a very vulgar culture. We're a very overly sexualized culture. Uh, I, I think that almost any parent uh, would willingly admit that they are at war with our culture to raise their kids. And my wife and I have five kids and we just feel like we stay at war. And so my part of my solution is 
that we need to start finding ways to choose leaders differently based on these values that George Washington expressed. We need to start living those values in our home and our community. And essentially, Seema, what I'm trying to say is that if you are reading my book and you feel overwhelmed that you are at war with our ungodly, vulgar culture, you should not feel alone. And what I want to do is create a community. I give my email throughout the book for people to email me. It's richard at findingwashington.com. Email me and let's start creating communities where we can come together and start finding ways to be more virtuous. And hopefully, Seema, and this is not something I say on every podcast, but at the end of the day, what I'm looking for is a platform to, to share the gospel. That's what I'm looking for. And if I can get a group of moms that have a book club that maybe are familiar with Christianity to invite me to speak to them, then that's an opportunity for me to say, hey, George Washington's great and these values are great. But the real difference is Jesus. And so that's really, it's about creating a conversation and then creating a platform for, for the gospel. Well, that, that's a good goal to have. And I hope you do reach all that. And I think, you know, just you and I starting and talking about this will help to spread the message. And that's the reason why I'm doing it as well. Um, but as far as like, you know, the morality from George Washington times till today, although, you know, you could say that he, he was a just man, a moral man, but, you know, morality is flowable because things and ideas change and you have to adapt to that culture, right? Not to immorality, but certain things, you know, like the values, like uh, women were not working back then. They were primarily homemakers, right? So that has changed considerably. That means whatever I'm doing now, I, I wouldn't have been able to do back then. So some of these things, I think God allows society to grow into whatever they're supposed to be, um, but also in context of, you know, um, what are we supposed to be learning from biblical ways to apply it to modern times versus always trying to pinpoint a certain era of time? Like if I lived in Jesus' day, my life would be completely different as it is right now. I don't know if it'd be better or worse, but he put me in this time frame to be able to do what I need to do. And same for you and everyone else that's living. And the thing that I see the most is like the God, you know, granted uh, freedoms through constitutional rights, uh, alienable rights, and uh, biblical rights to be able to, you know, obtain the freedom from sin and all that. And if he made United States as a place to harvest and grow into, you know, biblical morality, and yet it's the same place that Satan's having his you know dream of fulfilling all of his fantasies so but the thing is about our culture is not just it doesn't just stay within our borders it's spreading all over the world and every uh you know uh, governmental policy that they now enact is now global policy so whatever you know like social distancing and all of these crazy things they've done in the last three years uh, mandates and you know vaccine it wasn't just like we'll just protect americans from some sort of phantom disaster but it, it spread through all over the world so now whatever we do it impacts everybody wherever they are so i think you know how would you think that our duty as christians now versus in the past of just you know uh knowing what morality is i think morality has to be adjusted to what we're dealing with today. Well, so to some extent, there are shifts in morality. But when you look at humanity from a historical perspective, there are certain moral values that are concrete in every society since humans have been able to communicate through either cave drawings or writing things down on papyrus or some other form of, of material. And so, so the moral values that I expressed in the book that George Washington displayed are not transient values. In other words, 
um, we may we may value or devalue something that another generation valued more or valued less, right? But these there are concrete moral values that well, let's that talk obey. about those. Let's talk about those concrete moral values from the perspective that you wrote the book. So, so integrity, that is a concrete moral value. Um, integrity means wholeness. It means not being divided. It comes from a math term, uh, integer. Every culture across humanity has valued integrity over a lack of integrity. Now, that's not comprehensive, meaning that's not to say people didn't begin to value people of less integrity, but, but integrity has always been a foundational moral value in almost every society. In other words, lying is wrong. Stealing is wrong. Uh, th those things are wrong, and those are based on integrity. Um, I would say that character, which is how you express your integrity, is highly valued across cultures. Uh, we're about to have an election uh, in Florida, where I live, the primaries, and every candidate is trying to make an appeal to voters based on their character. Vote for me because I'm a, a family man, or vote for me because you know I'm a mother of three, or vote for me because here's a picture of me at church with my family, or or here's a picture of me volunteering somewhere. Like there, so so there is this understanding that people still value. Uh, character, which is an expression of, of integrity. Uh, courage is still valued. Courage meaning that um, that people hold convictions about things and 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 then have the courage to uh, to pursue those convictions. That that would be you know some like Rosa Parks, right? Somebody like that, or um, you know someone holding a conviction to to stand rather than kneel at the national anthem, which is that whether you stand or kneel for the national anthem may be a changing value, but people who exercise their convictions are always viewed uh, more positively than people that give in to whatever the crowd is. So, so those are the kind of things that Washington displayed. And Washington lived in a culture, you have to remember, he lived during the Enlightenment where even though the average person was not a deist and the average person went to church and was a Christian, at least, at least they ascribed to a Christian ethic. Um, Washington lived in a day where um, people that were trying to put this country together weren't as committed to Christianity as him. But even in the midst of that, and when I say that, I mean like Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was probably a deist. Um, Thomas Paine, who wrote Common Sense, was was a deist. And Washington lived in a time where these people who were deists were trying to make the same argument that Washington was making, but from a different perspective. And Washington wouldn't bend one ounce uh, when it came to his his faith and his convictions. And so some of these things are are concrete moral values that really don't change, but from, but that is really from a from a secular perspective, right? We know you and I know Sema that the thing that produces real virtue is the fruit of the spirit. Right. And that's that's where that comes from, and so that's what I'm saying here is that I've got a book about George Washington where he explain where he displayed all these virtues that are really a part of his Christianity, which really means that these things were part of spiritual fruit in his life. And so if I can make an argument that we need to get back to these things and, and have a platform to talk about, well, there's a difference between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God, and there's a difference between uh, living by the flesh and living by the spirit and, and make those arguments. And so uh, that's, really, that's really the argument that I'm making. No, it's a great argument. I'm glad you're here to talk about it. Um, so how do you envision your future in bringing together the Christian community um, to be able to start making those ripples to change the entire nation? As you already know, the Bible talks about it'll get worse and worse and worse. But what does that really mean for us in trying to use 
modern technology to get together, talk about this, and the way the church is even changing, you know, it's no longer the traditional church, but it's kind of morphed into a lot of other things. So how do you envision us as the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years? That's a good question. So I referenced earlier a passage from Matthew chapter 24. And in that passage in Matthew, Jesus is saying, okay, there's going to be birth pains. There's going to be wars and there's going to be rumors of wars. Um, people are going to start to, the, the love of many will, I think, wax cold is what the King James probably says. And there's, there's all these things that are just going to get progressively worse. But then he says, after he talks about how bad it's going to get, Jesus says, and the gospel will be preached in every nation. So right. the thing for us to remember is that as things get worse, according to Jesus, and Jesus was speaking prophetically, as things seemingly get worse, the gospel is going forward. In other words, there's no scenario, Sema, there's not one scenario here where the degradation of culture stops the work of the, the church. There's no scenario. Even though it might get bad and we might think, oh my gosh, I, I can't even send my kids to public schools, things are so bad. As, as things get progressively worse, the gospel is going to get more and more pervasive and the church is going to, to grow. And so I am very optimistic. Now, what I want to see is I want to see the country I love so much turn to God. And I want to see a revival in our country. And we've seen revivals in our country and at times when things were horrible. For instance, right after the Civil War, just you know, 20 years or so, 30 years after the close of the Civil War, we had the largest revival in the history of Christianity that's still going on that started at Azusa Street in 1906, which formed the, the modern Pentecostal movement, which is still, the Pentecostal church is the only segment of Christianity that's really growing right now. And so that all happened in the midst of a time when Americans were extremely divided over North versus South and our economy was divided and uh, we just fought a civil war and, and, and blacks, Jim Crow laws were, were being instituted in the South. And, and in the midst of all of that degradation, God uses a, a, an African-American to lead a revival in 1906 that really has changed the face of Christianity on the globe. And so, so I'm saying that to say, as bad as it looks like things are going to get, and they are, According to Jesus's prophetic statement, at the same time, there's nothing that that can happen that can slow down the church. It's almost like Jesus is saying that towards the end, Satan will get desperate. That's the way I'm reading it. That's not what Jesus says. That's kind of my way of sort of right. interpreting loosely that Satan's going to get desperate, and in spite of his best efforts to degrade humans. The gospel wins. So that's where You're we put our faith. Absolutely right about that. And I, I actually wrote about that. The gospel will be spreading all over the world. I think that's actually happening now. It is. What, you know, might have uh, Catholicism and all that. So I do see a transformation in a lot of people's like, especially during when there's more persecution. Although COVID wasn't religious persecution, but it did force a lot of us to rethink about where we're at and what we should be doing. Because a lot of, you know, Christians uh, were saying that this, uh, the shots were like the mark of the beast and, you know, it's almost end is near, like sort of prophetic messages all over the social media. And I don't believe that's the case because the Bible is very specific about, you know, what the mark of the beast is and it's a act of worship to deny God and go along with Satan. So that's another debate and topic. But um, one of the things that I found interesting in all of these, before I even, you know, 
met you and about what your book was, that I looked into George Washington's uh, prophecy and vision mm -hmm. about going through three fundamental tribulations and then coming out of that, even the last one. And one of the uh, key things, which I'll read to you, uh, he that the prophecy wrote about says, while the stars remain and the heavens uh, send down uh, dew upon the earth as so long as the union will last, meaning union of America. So do you have any insight and want to talk about his prophecy and vision? Um, I have to admit to you, Seema, that, that I am unfamiliar with that. You and I communicated and you asked me about uh, Washington's prophecy. Right. And I thought that you were referring to a prophecy that was was issued about him after oh, a see. battle in uh, in the French and Indian War. So I'm I'm so sorry. I'm unfamiliar with what. No, that's what okay. But yeah, I apologize. I I because uh, I thought it was a general prophecy. But you can go ahead and talk about the prophecy that related to him. So one of the things that I believe about Washington is from a very early age, I think he saw himself as someone with a, uh, with, that was predestined with, with a divine call. That's the way he, he conducted himself through the Revolutionary War. There's never a moment when he even considered that they would lose, not in his private or public. He expressed concern, but he never really expressed that we're going to lose this. And he talked about providence a lot. Providence was really another name for God for him um, about the providence of God. And one of the things I think that helped Washington to think that way was after a major battle during the French and Indian War, uh, Washington spends 12 hours on a horse uh, fighting from the back of a horse, leading his troops. At the end of the battle, he's got he's had two horses shot out from under him. He's on his third horse. He's got four bullet holes in his coat, but not a scratch on him. Well, years after the French and Indian War, he and a friend of his, Dr. James Craik, are surveying land that was granted to him as an officer uh, as a result of the French and Indian War. And he and Dr. Craig are invited to go speak to, to meet with a group of Native Americans. And while they were there, uh, the Native Americans uh, told Washington that some of them were present at this battle where he had the horses shot out from under him and the bullet holes in his coat, said that they remember him because they all fired their weapons at him and no one could hit him. So when the Native Americans went back to their tribe after that battle, it was the Battle of Monongahela. After that battle, they told their people about it, and um, Native American religious leaders issued a prophecy about George Washington that said, essentially, that to a people yet unborn, he would be the father of a mighty nation, is what they, and I think that even though Washington never talked about that, uh, Dr. Craik wrote about that, and after Washington's death, um, there were three or four plays that were that were put together that were built around that Battle of Monongahela and that prophecy. So it was a well-known story uh, in American history. And so I don't know that Washington put a lot of stock in the Native American religious aspect of it as much as it confirmed to him that he had a role to play and he wouldn't, he wouldn't see defeat or death until he had fulfilled his role. And I, I think that was part of it. But that's the prophecy I thought you were referring to, which is still pretty amazing to me. It's one of my favorite stories about him. But that's, yeah. that's the prophecy. Well, I'm glad you shared that. I wasn't aware of that. The prophecy that I was finding is just um, basically talked about three different tribulations that the country was going to go through. Uh, I'm assuming one of them would have been the Civil War era. But he said the last one would be so terrible. Um, but then in the end, uh, the, all the divided people will still come together. And because um, he was saying that the country would be attacked from outside forces. 
um, from other nations like Russia, China, whatever, and that once they, the war would be on our soil and they would have mm. to combat these uh, other nations. And eventually, and it looked like it, it, he, he kind of deemed it like a dark cloud coming over our nation. And that as soon as it felt like it was hopeless and lost and we were going to be defeated, uh, God put his finger in the white um, white cloud to disperse all the dark clouds and then the nation would be strong again. Hmm. But one of the interesting thing, and I, I don't know if it's true or not, because the Bible says that things are going to get worse. And like I said, a lot of the uh, policies of globalism and things are actually coming from the United States. So Satan and God are here both together. Um, but so I don't, now, like, you know, there's many talks about America is going to be destroyed, you know, by whatever, wars or God's going to destroy it. And I never believed that God is going to destroy a nation that he helped build. So um, so that kind of gave me a little bit of hope that, I, you know, whether if it's true or not and whether things get worse. And I think I, I do take to heart what you said, that the gospel will grow even in a, when the worst of times. And uh, whatever the, you know, because uh, we don't know what the fate of America is. And a lot of them say that it's not in the Bible, so it can't be around anymore. So what do you think about that? Well, look, uh, I don't think you can, you know, I don't think you can find the Bahamas in the Bible either, or Cuba, <laughs> right? Venezuela is not mentioned in the Bible, right? right? So. You know, I don't know that that's the best argument. I think it's a, I think it is a specifically sort of American centric view of end times. Yeah. Of prophecy. And I'm not sure that's the best way to read prophecy. In fact, I know it's not. So I don't really concern myself with that too much, Seema. I think that for, for me, um, I want to work as hard as I can as an American to preserve our American values in as much as those values align with the values that I perceive to be aligned with Christianity, right? I want to pray for my country and my leaders. I want to see a revival, uh, a, a genuine revival in our country, and I want to be a part of that revival. And then, um, but my allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Right. And so the, the most important thing that could happen in the in the within the borders of the United States, the most important thing that could happen is that people would turn their hearts to God. And we know you start reading in the Old Testament, uh, and you don't get very far before you see God removing people from the land to punish them for turning their back on Him, returning them to the land, um, dispersing them again. Um, they were dispersed in seventy A.D. again. Right. Um, finally, came back. You know, after World War Two. And so, so my concern is in, in the whole scheme of things, um, my biggest desire is that the country, the people that live in the country I love so much would turn their hearts to Jesus. And then everything else is secondary to that. And of course, I don't want to see famines and I don't want to see wars and I don't want to see destruction and I don't want to see exile, but I want to see the kingdom of God advance. No, I agree. So here's a an important question for that follow up. That you know, we want everyone to have faith in God and have a great nation and all. But this country is also founded on many immigrants from all over the world that many of them don't believe in Christianity, right? So it's an individual decision when all over the world people recognize that this is the true God and this is what I want to worship. So how do you uh, propose that the nation's going to be unified in this vision of, you know, everyone worshiping God of the Bible when they come from all over the world and all those values are being reflected and melded in the today's culture? I, I don't mean to be a pessimist, but I'm, I'm not certain that, that we will see not in my lifetime anyway, I'm, I'm not doubting God, but I, I don't know that we will see some of these 
you know, people that come here that, that worship other gods. I don't know that we'll see them turn to Jesus. I don't know that we won't or that we will. Um, I think I mean, we'll see some for sure. But um, th- there are two different aspects of that really at play. One is whether or not these people accept Jesus. The other at play is will these people accept American values as they have been historically put forth? You don't have to be a Christian to be an American. And you don't have to be a Christian to believe in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. Now, it helps because that was the Christian ethic and the Christian, that was the dynamic in which those documents were put together. But um, I think there are two things at play here. If if you're not going to accept Jesus, that's between you and God. But if your religion is preventing you from accepting America, then I think you either need to figure out a way to be an American or leave. That, that sounds pretty harsh, but that's, that's a political well, I guess the reason The reason why I'm asking this question is because I wasn't born here. I was born in India. Mm-hmm. And much of the arguments that I get from uh, that are not people that have come here, other immigrants, is that they view Christianity as a white religion and a um, white culture that they're trying to preserve. And I think that's the battle that's going on right now, the confusion, where they think mm-hmm. they're trying to erase uh, the white culture because they feel like that's a threat to Christian the way that uh, Christian values, and they kind of, is synonymous to them. So, you know, I know that God is, is all-inclusive all over the world. He's going to reach the hearts of every man and woman somehow. So culturally, when you say, you know, we want to go back to the roots of American values, what would that look like in, in light of having now multicultural uh, ethnic backgrounds come together? How do we reach out and, you know, be inclusive to all of that? Well, first of all, Christianity is not a white man's religion. Jesus wasn't white. Yeah. And some of the greatest thinkers in the history of Christianity lived in Africa and Eastern Europe, Turkey, and what we call the, the, the um, which was the ancient Near East. It was Turkey. And so just because the majority of the people in the United States are Caucasian, and the most practiced religion, not just in the United States, but on the planet, is Christianity, doesn't mean that Christianity is a white person's religion. So when I hear that, that's how I respond. I, I hear that question sometimes. I, I teach world religions to, to secular college students, and sometimes I'll get that question. I'm like, well, if you think Christianity is a white person's religion, then you have no real concept of Christianity, because among white people, Christianity is not growing. But among Asians, Africans, and Hispanics, Christianity is growing like a weed. So that's really an improper view of Christianity. So I'll say that. And second of all, I would say that I don't care where you're from or what you look like. I don't care when it comes to being American. But what I do care about is that you embrace the principles which I think transcend most cultures and transcend certainly race and gender that these, these, these foundational principles that make us who we are as a nation shouldn't matter. I think if you come here to live, then you should be expected to embrace freedom of speech and freedom of religion. You should be expected to embrace that women have equal rights under the law. You should be able to embrace that that blacks and Native Americans have equal rights under the law. You should be able to em- embrace, you know, th- that that we are a nation of laws and those laws as they are embedded in the Constitution and not whatever particular religious laws that you might have, right? No, so I agree with you 100%. You know, I'm, I'm being, I'm just asking to kind of like relay the barriers that I see around various groups that, I mean, I agree with you 100%. You know, God is 
for all people. And I, I found him, he found me, he found everybody else that believes. But the barriers, you know, in talking to unbelievers of different nationalities and faiths, it's very difficult to reach to them. I'm just giving you a perception that they feel that it's a religion for only one race versus it's for all people. And so they have embraced other cultures and other religions like Islam that feels like that's only for a certain group of people. So I think that's why I wanted to address it because if you're talking about um, returning and revival and having integrity and all those values of American values, especially in the context from George Washington days till today, and you know they've been removing monuments everywhere uh, to erase the past and try to bring out their own reality. So I think part of our job is to kind of reach out to people in all communities, wherever they're planted, and share the gospel in a way that every culture can understand. In order to have values that are uniform, you know, that to have good moral character, you actually have to teach that all the way from not only your home, but schooling and your workplace and so on. And if it's broken down early enough, and I, and even today, I mean, I don't even know if religion even plays a big part in a lot of people's lives because everything is sort of uh, related to modern living, you know, working and uh, having fun and all of that. But when I look around, even if they have different faiths, they're not even vocal about their own faiths. It's, it's more like everything is subdued. So the morality is getting, uh, you know, more and more uh, reprobate. So, so that's why I ask these hard questions because I, you know, I want to reach out to different communities and my website reaches, uh, I don't have a huge audience yet, but it does reach all over the world, which I, I find that amazing. So I want to be able to say as a Christian uh, living in America that, you know, I do believe in God and I am around other Christians um, that, you know, wherever you are, the values of being, you know, believing in God is the same. It's universal. And although, I, you know, I want America to be a better place, um, but I do recognize that people have to embrace more than what it has been in the past. So one of the one of the things I would point to if I were you in, in a discussion with people is from the f from the first days of Christianity. Christianity has been a a a multi ethnic religion. If you if you read the story that Luke tells in the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts. So he wrote both of those books. He was a physician that traveled with Paul. So in the second chapter of Acts, this is after Jesus has ascended into heaven. Jesus instructs the believers to go to Jerusalem and wait for something. It's, it's a change in how the Holy Spirit operates in the life of, of God's people. So, so in that discourse that Luke is writing, he names all the people who are present that see and witness this event and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus as a result of that. It's, it's over 3,000 people. And Luke gives this long list of these all these people from all these different ethnic backgrounds that are there and that hear, they hear Peter's sermon. Peter preaches the first sermon in the Christian church and 3,000 people from all these different ethnic backgrounds. So from the first days of Christianity, it was multi-ethnic. In, in fact, it, it, it didn't even reach Caucasians until, until probably after the fourth century. Really, there were some, there were missionaries to England and things like that. James uh, was a missionary to England. But as far as Europeans being the, the, the primary um, practitioners of Christianity, it's never really been that way. It's, um, I, would, I would argue, actually, Seema, I would make a strong argument that if you were to 
group out all the ethnicities in the world that if you could somehow figure out who the who the dedicated Christians are and 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 weed out what I call casual Christians that maybe just go to church or maybe their family went to church and so they go, right? Things like that. I think that you would find that Asians, South Americans, and Africans dwarf the number of of um, of Caucasians that that practice Christianity. It's it's an, it's an interesting concept that people think that, but you know they think that because that is a selling point for their religion, right? Um, if you can just make up something, well, that's really for white people, and right. um, um, Islam is for you know, Arab, Middle Eastern, and black people, right? You can say that. Yeah. Or in the 60s, you had, you know, um, people on the militant end of the civil rights movement that were rejecting, like Malcolm X, that were rejecting Christianity as a white man's religion. It never really has been. And so I, I think that's a false argument. It doesn't no, hold water. So I'm going to keep asking you tough, tough questions. And I know we only have a little bit more. We've already... Um, it's been an hour. So one of the questions, as you mentioned um, from your discussion, was that since most of the biblical names, you know, the way I looked at it, how did it spread? Because all the biblical names, like Matthew, John, Luke, all of that, Mary, are mostly Western names, right? In no, they're not. They're not? So no, no, because they weren't Western people. They were Eastern people. From the Middle East, it just. No, no, I understand that, but I'm saying how it spread. Like you will not find those names in China or India or South America. It, it, it's it, it spread from the Middle East upwards, and then out towards the uh, United States. So that told me the gospel, the direction that the gospel went, and at least up until that point, and now it's spreading. Uh, faster than ever, but uh, like all of the biblical names, uh, it didn't seem like it was accepted towards the east, but it went towards north and west. Well, that's that's not accurate either. <laughs> so, when Christianity started growing, Christianity grew south into Africa and east okay. into modern-day Turkey, if you read the book of Revelation where all those seven letters are, those right. seven churches, those seven letters, all seven of those churches, Ephesus, and they're, they're all in modern-day Turkey, right? And so the church grew primarily for the first three centuries into Africa and Asia. Asia meaning not China necessarily, but Asia meaning basically what you would have the eastern part of the former Roman Empire. Right. So that was the strongest areas of Christianity. Right. I accept that. I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, towards other nations like India, China, and all the way to the east, Japan. And I do recognize that it spread throughout the Middle East. But after that, um, why didn't it go into the eastern part? where the names would have been recognizable because you can tell wherever these names are, that that's where the gospel is spread. Right. So. Right. Well, so the, the new Testament was written, you know, over a course of, we'll just say 50 years. Right. Um, and all the writers of the new Testament lived in a very small geographical area. Right. That is really unrelated to, to what appeal the gospel might have based on the genesis of the language, like the name. And I, and I, would, I would even say that that's, like for instance, Jesus, the word Jesus, that's not what he was called in his language right Jesus right. is Joshua really is what yeah. so 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 I, th I think that I would be careful with that line of thought because I, I think that it's I think it's based primarily on the English translation of a now dead language which that version of Greek is not spoken anymore um, and even Aramaic so I uh, I don't know that I, I don't know that that 
I mean, if someone makes that argument, I think it's really easy to say, well, you're making an argument based on an English translation of the scriptures. If we were to translate, uh, you know, translate the New Testament from Greek into Korean, it, it probably wouldn't be Jesus. It would be another name, right? No, I agree with that. So, but even in the older Greek or Hebrew versions, the names didn't carry over to the Eastern part of the world. So, and I grew up in part in the Eastern part. It didn't, it doesn't exist there. It has to be evangelized. Uh, it, it, it wasn't a natural course of, some people believed and some didn't. It had to go into those countries to be evangelized. And, you know, and they may now, you know, choose names, biblical names if they wanted to. But uh, historically, I don't see that pattern. Um, so that's why I was asking. But I agree that once the English translation uh, came about and those that were printing it and replicating those books, you know, the names kind of reflected in those areas um, more than the eastern part of the world. Uh, they would reflect an English translation of those words. Yeah, right. Um, so what else do you want to share about your book and thoughts? So I would say that what I'd like to leave your, uh, leave your listeners with a couple of things. So first of all, uh, the name of the book is Finding Washington, Why America Needs, um, I'm sorry, Why America uh, Needs to Renew the Values of the Most Essential Founding Father. I just botched the title of my own book. But why America Needs to Rediscover the Virtues of Her Most Essential Founding Father. Um, you can find it anywhere online books are sold, uh, Amazon, iTunes, uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, your local bookstore might have it. Um, I think it's on your website now. Yeah, I um, also put it on my website. So I would appreciate if you guys bought it through my website, but you can buy it anywhere, all the platforms, if you search. But George Washington said something at the Constitutional Convention. Um, there was, they were trying to, the, the framers of the Constitution were trying to hammer out some issues. And you had small states versus large states, southern states versus north, northern states. They couldn't work out these issues. And George Washington made a statement. He stood up as the president of the Constitutional Convention. This was before he was the president of the United States. This is when we were trying to put together the Constitution. And George Washington, recognizing that we were at an impasse on a certain issue, he stood up at the convention and he made the following statement, which I think is applicable to us. And I'm just going to read here. Uh, he said, to please all is impossible. And to attempt it would be in vain. The only way, therefore, is to form such a government as will bear the scrutinizing eye of criticism. And here's where we come in. And trust it to good sense and patriotism to the people to carry it into effect. So one of the virtues that George Washington had was hope. Not just hope in Jesus, but hope in future Americans to make good decisions. And he said that for us to make those good decisions, we need two things. We need patriotism, which means you love your country, even if you recognize that the Trail of Tears happened and that Jim Crow happened and that we had slavery and that the Spanish-American War probably wasn't a just war, right? We've done some things that are immoral. You love this place and you want to make it better, so you need to be a patriot. And the second thing he said was you need good sense. So we can't be a land of functional idiots. We can't be a land that uh, gets all of our... Uh, uh, gets all of our news from from celebrities and and um, and all of our idols are influencers on Instagram, right? He said you have to be a patriot, you have to have good sense. But if we will employ those two things, if we will say, okay, we love this country, and then we're going to work hard uh, to make it better, then George Washington had hope that in the end we would make the right decision. And so, even in the midst of a big fight at the Constitutional Convention. George Washington expressed hope in this country. And so I have hope as well because Seema, I think there are more people on my side of this issue than there are the other side. It's just, we don't have cable news and we don't have a bullhorn. Yeah, but I what agree. we do have is we have 
our kids and our friend groups and our families and our church and our Bible study groups. And I want to see people come together over this issue. Um, give me an opportunity to, to help bring us together. Send me an email, richard at findingwashington.com. And let's start a conversation and let's uh, start a grassroots movement to really take our culture back. That sounds great. And I really do appreciate you uh, answering all my questions and being on here today. Do you have a website? Uh, you talked about building a community and a platform. Do you have a, a website that they can go to? I don't have a website yet. Uh, the best way uh, to do that is to email me. And I, okay. I give my email several places in the book. Um, and there are places in the book when you're reading that I want you to stop reading and send me an email. And so I'm, um, the book's been out for a couple of months and people have been sending emails. And um, uh, that's really the best way uh, to do that. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And I hope to talk to you again about, because you have a lot of information, valuable information as a scholar and a historian that we can learn from. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Have a good day.